Good to see everybody out this evening. I invite you to get out your Bibles and open up back to uh, the book of Joshua. You want to go ahead and open there. I almost decided to mess with you a little bit. I was going to get up here and say we were going to go back over this morning's lesson just to make sure everybody got it down. <laughs> but I figured somebody would probably get up and walk out. So. <laughs> This evening we're going to talk about Jericho, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 30, as the Hebrew writer is recounting all those different victories of faith, he says there in verse 30, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. I can remember since the time I was young and first heard the story of the battle of Jericho, that it was quite an enthralling story. I think most children are fascinated by that particular story. As we think about how the Israelites marched around the city walls, these impenetrable walls, and ultimately were able to go in because of God's power to cause those walls to come tumbling down. And so we are going to study this particular account this evening and see if we can't Refresh ourselves for one, but also make some application to our own lives in regards to our own faith and trust in the Lord and His ability to deliver us through very trying circumstances. I had the thought as I was putting this lesson together, often we talk about how God is able to open doors for us in our lives. We talk about that, of course, symbolically, but as we're going to see tonight, I think it's going to become apparent that there's times where God will just knock down walls in our lives as well. And so this is very nicely illustrated by this particular account that we have back in the book of Joshua. Chapter 6 is the primary text that we're going to be considering tonight. We'll be looking at some verses in uh, the surrounding chapters as well as we make some different points. But to get started, we're going to Read verse 1 and go down through verse 14. So it says there that Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. In other words, they had sealed off the city because they were aware that the Israelites were making their progress into the land of promise and God was with them. And so they were doing their very best to guard against any kind of intrusion by this imposing force. So it says that none went out and none came in. Everything was completely sealed up tight. So verse 2 says, The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, its king and the mighty men of valor. And so you shall march around the city, all you men of war. You shall go all around the city once, and this you shall do for six days. And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times. And the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall come to pass when you make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout with a great shout. And the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up every man straight before him. Then Joshua the son of Nun called the priest and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant 
And let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Proceed and march around the city, and let him who is armed advance before the ark. So it was, when Joshua had spoken to the people, that these seven priests bearing the seven trumpets, uh, they advanced and blew the trumpets, and the ark of the covenant of the Lord followed them. And the armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard came after the ark, while the priests continued uh, again to blow the trumpets. So verse 10, Now Joshua had commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout or make any noise with your voice, nor shall a word proceed out of your mouth until the day that I say to you, Shout, and then you shall shout. So he had the ark of the Lord circle the city, going around it once, and then they came into the camp and lodged in the camp. Joshua rose early in the morning. The priests took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests, again bearing their seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark, went on continually and blew with the trumpets. The armed men went before them, and the rear guard came after them, while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. On the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to the camp, and so they did for six days. As we get into the next section of the chapter, obviously we get into that seventh day, which is key, as their victory was drawing near. But for these first six days... They were instructed to march around just the one time, the entire army and the seven priests and the Ark of the Covenant. Now, it's important that we kind of think about why this city was such a problem for not only the Israelites, but any army that would come to try and conquer it. It was a very, very heavily fortified city. As you look at the diagram here, you can see kind of a, if we were to cut the city in half and look at it from the side, you can see how it was laid out here. At the base of the hill upon which Jericho was built, there was a retaining wall that went all the way around. And that, of course, kind of helped to secure the earth that was there in place so that the city on top would be secure. It was about 15 feet in height. And then just on top of that retaining wall was the first of the two main city walls. Now this wall was much taller than the retaining walls, about uh, 25 feet in height. So for a total, you've got about 40 feet. And you can imagine that's equivalent to about a four-story tall building. And so you go, think about downtown Worcester here, you can walk down and see some buildings that are about four stories tall, and you stand at the base of one of those and look up, that's quite a height. You can imagine trying to figure out how is my army going to get through, and that's just the first, (laughs) the first walls. And then, of course, there were some uh, houses and things that were between the first and second walls, but then inside the second set would be uh, the king and the palace and all of the uh, the more important structures. So both of those walls, those main walls, were uh, the same height, about 25 feet in height. So even if you could figure out how to get past the first walls, you'd have to do the same thing again to really get all the way inside the city and completely conquer it. There was just one gate one main gate for the city. You know, a lot of cities have multiple ways to get in and out. We're going to talk more about that one gate as we 
go along. Uh, but it's important for us to kind of understand some of these things as we begin to look at how God causes these walls to fall down and to properly understand how this enabled the Israelites to secure their victory. So let's pick back up in the text here with verse 15, and we'll read down through verse 21. So it came to pass on the seventh day, that again they rose early, as they'd been doing, about the dawning of the day. They marched around the city, this time not just once, but it says seven times, in the same manner as they had done for those six days leading up to this seventh day. And so again, reiterating on that day only, they marched around the city seven times. Verse 16 says, The seventh time it happened, when the priests blew the trumpets, that Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Now the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction, it and all who are in it. Only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all who are with her in her house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. We'll talk more about Rahab and some of the things that happened there a little bit later here. Verse 18, you by all means are instructed to abstain from the accursed things, he goes on to say. It says, lest you become accursed yourselves when you take of them and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. You know, of course, as you continue into chapter 7, that Achan didn't pay close attention to those instructions, and he caused quite a bit of trouble for the camp of Israel. But they were instructed here that they weren't to take any of the riches of the city. In verse 19, it says, All the silver, all the gold, all the vessels of bronze and iron, these are to be consecrated to the Lord, and they shall come into the treasury of the Lord. So verse 20 says, The people shouted when the priests blew the trumpets, and it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, that the people shouted with a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. And the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city. And they utterly destroyed all that was there, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep, and donkey with the edge of the sword. So we come back to our diagram here that we had looked at a moment ago. And you notice that in the instructions that were given to the Israelites, they were going to go straight up into the city, every man straight before them. We've read that a couple different times, both in it being foretold and then also in it being realized once the Israelites had done as they were commanded. Well, how would that make any sense, especially when you've got these massive walls? How could they just walk right up into the city? Well, you notice that the walls fell down flat. And there's been several archaeological excavations of the city of Jericho and what those archaeologists have found is indeed that the walls fell outward and fell down flat. And so what that enabled the Israelites to do is, especially that first wall would fall down at the base of the retaining wall, it would make a ramp so that they could march straight up into the city, just as the command had been given. Joshua 6 and verse 5, again, the people shall go up every man, Straight before him, we see that verse 20, that is exactly what they did. The people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city, utterly laid waste to everything 
that was inside, save, of course, again, Rahab and her family because of the service that she'd provided for the spies that had previously been sent in. So quite an interesting thing to stop and think about, especially when we kind of put it into a visual format and helps us to appreciate just what God did for his people here. And so as we begin to think about some applications to be made from this story, the first and I think maybe the most obvious is that God's way works. As we had talked about earlier, this city was a problem for any army that would come before it. It would not be easy to take such a heavily fortified, well-defended city, especially when there was just the one gate. And so most likely what any other army would have done, what the Israelites would have done if they were left to their own devices, is they would have laid siege to the city. In other words, surrounded it and prevented anybody from coming in or out and just waited and waited and waited however long was necessary for all their supplies to get used up and either they would give up and wave the white flag or, you know, everybody would just eventually die inside the city and and they would just kind of force their way in at that point. By all human estimation, marching around the city once a day for six days and then doing it seven times on a seventh day, what is that going to accomplish, right? Man's wisdom would say that's just foolishness. That is not a military tactic. You know, you're not going to go talk to any uh, general who's worth his salt and say, you know, if, if you're thinking about taking a city, would you think about maybe your first strategy being maybe we're just going to march around it for a few days and, and see what that does? <laughs> they would just kind of look at you strange, right? What's that going to do, right? But nonetheless, we see that although this made no sense from a human standpoint, it the instructions were followed and God's way worked, didn't it? Just as he said it would. You know, again, thinking about man's wisdom, man would acknowledge, well, there's just this one way in. How can we possibly have success in the way that God has explained for it to come? If we come back uh, to Joshua chapter 2 and just notice a couple of verses. Now, this is in context here where the spies had been sent into Jericho to spy it out and so they could begin to make plans as to how they were going to accomplish this great feat. This, of course, was before God had given them the plain instruction as to what they were going to do. But here in chapter 2, in verse 5, uh, this is just after Rahab had hid the spies. It says, it happened uh, as the gate was being shut when it was dark. She's explaining to the guards who'd come searching for them, uh, telling them, of course, she's lying about what really happened, but she's telling them, well, they went out through the gate when it was dark. Nobody noticed them slip out there, and they got out just before it was shut. And so if you go quickly, you can you can overtake them. And verse 7, it says, the men pursued them by the road to the Jordan, to the fords. And as soon as those who pursued them had gone out, notice they shut the gate. So that was their regular custom, you know, when when it was nighttime especially, if somebody needed to go out, they'd open the gate just long enough for them to get through, but then that gate was shut immediately afterwards. And so it wasn't like it was just left open for people to come in and cause problems for the inhabitants of the city there. Uh, down in verse 15, we see that because of this being the case, because that main entrance was so heavily guarded, that in order to get those spies out of the city, she actually let them down 
Verse 15, by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall, and she dwelt there on the wall. Now, another interesting thing to note is that Joshua chapter 3, verse 15, it talks there about the Israelites are crossing over the Jordan. It talks about that the banks of the Jordan had been overflowed, and it explains because at the time of the harvest every year, the Jordan's banks uh, would be overflowing. The, the river would run high. So it was harvest time. And in fact, if you jump back to chapter 2 and verse 6, you could see there that when Rahab hid the spies, where did she hide them? Uh, she hid them among the grain that she had accumulated there on her rooftop because that was the time of year it was. Everybody was reaping from what they had planted. So as you think about that from, again, a military standpoint, this is the worst possible time to try and lay siege to a city right at the harvest when they've just taken in all this uh, bountiful crop. Well, they're going to be able to stay in there for a long time. And this is going to be a rough situation. You're going to be laying siege to the city for for many, many months before their food finally runs out. So again, as you think about from man's perspective, from man's wisdom, none of this really made much sense. Why would we do this? At this time of year, why would marching around the city make any difference at all? Uh, But nonetheless, as we've said, God's way works. It's worth noting here, uh, again, there's been several archaeological expeditions, as we've said, that have looked at the original site of Jericho and uncovered a number of very interesting things, things that have confirmed the biblical account. Uh, Two archaeologists by the name of Garstang and Kenyon as they were excavating and, and searching out the area, they found many storage jars full of grain that had been caught in the fiery destruction. They could tell by looking at those things that they had been burned before ultimately being covered up by earth and other things. But it's a, it's a unique find as you think about archaeologists and what they would typically find in uncovering and unearthing an ancient city. You wouldn't be finding jars of grain and and these kinds of resources because they would have been used, especially if it was a, a city that had been laid siege. You know, they, they would have been using those things up and they would not have, have survived. And not only that, but if you think about in the ancient world, grain was used a lot of times just like money. It was a valuable commodity, not just uh, as food, but it uh, could be used for animals and other different things. could be used for bartering. We see in 1 Kings chapter 5 there that Solomon uh, bartered with Hiram to get the cedar that he needed to construct the temple. And in exchange for that, one of the things that he offered Hiram was uh, a lot of wheat and grain. So we see how that was a, a valuable means of trade back in that day and age. So very interesting that we see that these things survived and were found intact when these archaeologists, if I could say that word right, uh, went in and, and uncovered these things. And so, again, this confirms that the inhabitants of Jericho did not escape. If they would have escaped, they would have taken these things with them. And also that the city did indeed fall in a very short amount of time, just these seven days as we've been reading about. Again, if it had been a long siege, this grain would have been consumed and used up. So interesting sometimes to look at 
what men have uncovered as they have sought these things out and seeing how it confirms and bolsters the biblical truth. If we think about God's ability to do things in our lives, fantastic things, of course Jericho is not the only example in the word of God that we might consider, but in Jeremiah 33 and verse 3, there we read, Call to me, and I will answer you, God speaking, and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. Kind of reminiscent of what the apostle writes in Ephesians chapter 3 there, verse 20. It says there, To him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. You know, sometimes we think about these fantastic things that God did as something that is of the past. But I would submit to you that God still does fantastic things, miraculous things even, in our lives today. When we trust in him and keep him first. And I know just in thinking back over the course of my life, there's been situations Uh, Truly impossible situations by all human estimation that God in his mercy has seen me through to victory. And it is really quite amazing to stop and consider just how, how powerful and wonderful our God is. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 4 says, Every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. We talked at some length about that this morning, didn't we? And so if God created all things, and certainly he can do all things. There is nothing that is too complicated or difficult for him. Another thing that I think we can learn from this account is the relationship between grace and belief and obedience. These are very important terms that we refer to uh, refer to quite frequently, and and rightfully so, because they're talked about throughout the entirety of Scripture, especially in the New Testament. We know how important it is that we have belief in God, but likewise that we have obedience to God, and there's various passages that highlight that. Hebrews 11 and 6 is one of my favorite verses that illustrates that. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And what is faith? Well, it goes on and talks about the dual nature of biblical faith, of saving faith. He that comes to God must believe that he is, that certainly is part of it, but also that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek after him. And so we have to believe, but we also have to diligently seek after him. And that involves our obedience to his will. Now, in Romans chapter 5, if you turn there for a moment, we see here understanding what God's definition of faith is, how that relates to his grace that he offers us. Romans chapter 5 and the first couple verses here we'll note together. Paul writes there and says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, notice that, 
We now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, for Christ's sacrifice makes all of this possible. But he goes on in verse 2 and he says, Through whom, that is through Christ, also we have access by faith into what? Into, he says, this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So what allows us to be recipients of grace and to stand in grace? You see, both of those statements that our faith is required and involved. John 3 and verse 16 is a popular verse. It's one that's quoted almost all the time, probably by somebody just about every day in some some region of the world. Probably the verse, if you have any verse memorized, it is John 3.16, For God so loved the world, and he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now some people, of course, will try and use that verse to teach the doctrine that belief, alone is all that is required. They'll say, well, see, he who believes in Christ, that's all it talks about there. It doesn't say anything about baptism or repentance or any of these kinds of things. And so they will push that concept as a result of focusing specifically on that verse. But I want us to notice verse 36 of John 3. This is in the same context of what Jesus is saying, same speech, if you will. And I think it becomes more plain by noticing this verse in addition to verse 16 what this belief in Christ necessitates in our lives verse 36 reads he who believes in the son has everlasting life but he who does not believe and that's the phrase we're going to focus on there he who does not believe the son shall not see life but the wrath of God abides on him that phrase there that's in the New King James, translated does not believe, is apatheo, which if you look up the definition of that Greek word, it means to disobey, to rebel, to be disloyal, or to refuse conformity. And this is one of those verses where typically I I think the New King James does a very good job of uh, rightly translating from the Greek text But I actually like some of the other uh, slightly more conservative, I guess you'd say, translations, especially the New American Standard Version, which renders this statement, he who does not obey the Son shall not see light. Likewise, even the New International Version renders it, whoever rejects the Son. And these are actually a little bit more um, true to the intention of the Greek word. And so in the same context here of where Jesus says, whoever believes should not perish, we see as we look in verse 36 that when we do not believe, the meaning there being when we do not obey, we do not have life, but rather the wrath of God will abide upon us. So just kind of an interesting little word study there that I thought was worth mentioning in light of what we were thinking about there. We might ask ourselves, are we walking by faith today? Certainly the Israelites were, because again, I'm sure many of them were thinking and discussing amongst themselves, you know, why are we marching around the city again? <laughs> Didn't do anything the first day. I don't think it's going to do anything today. What do you think? 
I'm sure those kinds of conversations were had. I'm sure those kinds of thoughts were thought. But they continued to do as God commanded and specifically fulfilled those commands. And we see again that, that God acted as a result. And so are we walking by faith today? Sometimes things might not necessarily make sense to us, perhaps. But do we do what God said regardless? You know, it's a interesting thing back in Numbers chapter 13. We find here at this point in time that... The Israelites were still under the helm of Moses and Aaron, and they were initially coming to the land of promise after they'd been delivered out of Egypt. This was before they were sentenced to wander in the wilderness for those 40 years. You remember that they sent 12 spies into the land. Verse 26 says, They departed and came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation, showed them the fruit of the land. They told him and said, we went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey. And here, this is its fruit. They brought examples back to show them. But then notice what they say. Nevertheless, verse 28, the people who dwell in the land are strong. Notice the cities are fortified and very large. No doubt they probably had seen Jericho in their initial scouting of the land of promise and described it in this way. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there, they said. In other words, we can't go take this land. How could we ever conquer such a such fortified cities, but yet if they just had trusted in God, then they could have gone in initially when they'd first arrived, and instead of having to wander and struggle for all those years in the wilderness. In chapter 14, verse 36, notice in talking about the men, obviously Joshua and Caleb were excluded from the rest of them because they were the only two that brought back and said, hey, uh, we can do this. God has already said he's given us the land. They They gave a positive report, in other words. But the others, it says, the man whom Moses sent to spy out the land, who returned and made all the congregation complain against him by bringing a bad report. Notice it says that those very men who brought the evil report died by the plague before the Lord. They did not walk by faith. And there were consequences for that. So a powerful lesson for us to think about today. Are we walking by faith or are we allowing the winds and the waves. You think about Peter there as he got out of the boat to walk to Jesus and everything was fine until he began to look around and take his eyes off off of God. <coughs> Sometimes we can be guilty of that, that same thing. Notice in Mark chapter 9 and verse 23 here, this man had a son who was demon-possessed. It was a violent possession to the point that this demon was throwing his son at times even into the fire and it was just a terrible situation. And so he would come to Christ and ask Jesus to help if he could cast this demon out. And verse 23, Jesus said to him, If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Notice verse 24, Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, and notice he says, Help my unbelief. 
You know, sometimes we're we're like that father where, yes, we believe, but, you know, sometimes we do have those doubts that creep in. And and sometimes we need to ask God to, to help us in our unbelief. And I was encouraged, uh, Ethan's not with us tonight, but here recently he expressed to the congregation, he said, you know, I'm, I'm struggling a little bit in my faith. And kind of asking us to, to help him in his unbelief, to pray for him and encourage him if we could. And as I understand it, he's he's been encouraged as a result. And I commend all of you for your part that you played in that. But the, the devil wants us to doubt. He wants us to question. He wants us to start thinking, well, this doesn't make any sense. You know, why should I do what God has said? It's just doing nothing but making life more difficult for me. You know, there's some situations where that's the case. But we need to constantly study. We need to constantly communicate with each other when we're struggling. Not be afraid to express to the Lord, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. You know, studying stories like this will help that unbelief. As we are reminded of what God can do when we trust in him. That's why these things are recorded for us. Final lesson that I'd like us to consider tonight in light of the story of Jericho is we see God keeps his word. And obviously we've seen that fulfilled just in the instruction uh, to the Israelites and then them following through with that and, and God causing those walls to, uh, to fall. But there's a couple other things in relation to this story that are worth noting that also highlight the fact that God indeed keeps his word. And one of those is the promise that was made to Rahab. Back in chapter 2, um, you're still there. Uh, chapter 2, let's look here at uh, verse four, uh, verse 12, I'm sorry. We'll read through verse 14. Now Rahab is speaking to the spies. And she says, I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I've shown you kindness, that you also will show kindness to my father's house. And give me a true token, and spare my father and mother, and my brothers and sisters, and all that I have, and deliver our lives from death. And so we see that the men answered her, in verse 14, and they said, Our lives for yours. If none of you tell this business of ours, it shall be when the Lord has given us the land that we will deal kindly and truly with you. And we see that that promise was indeed fulfilled. You come back over to chapter 6. Now, of course, Joshua had instructed them just before they began to shout and the walls actually came down. He reminded them that, look, you're not to harm Rahab or her family or any of her things because of the promise that we've made and because of the help that she gave uh, to the spies when they went in. And we see how that all came to fruition. Pick up there in verse 22. It says, Joshua had said to the two men who'd spied out the country, go in to the harlot's house and from there bring out the woman and all that she has as you swore to her. So the young men who'd been spies, they went in and brought her out. And also, remember the, the request she'd made was not just for herself, but her family. And that's exactly what happened. Her father, her mother, her brothers, all that she had, they were brought out, all of her relatives, and they left them outside of the camp of Israel. But they burned the city and all that was in it with fire. Only the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. Verse 25 says, Joshua spared Rahab the harlot, her father's household, and all that she had. 
And at the time these things were written, it says she dwells in Israel to this day, because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. So obviously the text itself confirms the fulfillment of that promise. But again, I'd like us to note some things from men's excavations of Jericho, which I think are very, very interesting. Uh, There was a German excavation that took place from 1907 uh, all the way through 1909. So a couple years they spent there uh, unearthing things and and excavating the, the original city there. And what they found was on the north side of the city, there was a short stretch of the lower city wall that did not fall as it had virtually everywhere else. There was a portion of that mud brick wall that was still standing to a height of over two meters, which is about eight feet. And what is more, there were houses connected to the wall that were still intact as well. Now, whose house do you suppose that was? Isn't that quite amazing? Again, we are reminded back in verse 15 that Rahab's home was built on the outer city wall. And so we see that not only from the scriptures themselves, but we can go and see with our own eyes, or at least they did at at this point in time, that God had kept his promise. Now, another interesting thing in relation to the text here that we can see this illustrated is in uh, this curse that Joshua places upon anyone that would try and rebuild the city of Jericho. In verse 26, it says there that Joshua charged them at that time, saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord who rises up and builds this city Jericho. And it's going to cost him a lot if he does intend to go ahead and go through with it. Notice he says, He shall lay its foundation with his firstborn, and with his youngest he shall set up its gates. Now, you read through that, and it's kind of a relatively small portion of the overall story there, and you can kind of almost breeze through it and not really give much thought to it. But it is rather interesting as you jump forward in time uh, to the time of Ahab, And in 1 Kings chapter 16 and verse 34, in the days of Ahab, we read of this man named Hiel of Bethel, and we're told that he decided he was going to rebuild Jericho. And now notice what happened as a result of his efforts. It says that he laid its foundation with Abiram, his firstborn, and with his youngest son, Segub, he set up its gates. Why was that? Well, it was according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through Joshua, the son of Nun. And so even after all that time had passed, God remembered what he had spoken through his servant Joshua, and he kept his word. And so we see kind of a a positive and negative example in a sense. It was positive that Rahab was spared. It was unfortunate that Hiel decided to go against what had been spoken and disregard that warning and went ahead and lost two of his sons as a result. But nonetheless, the constant thing rings true, and that is that God does not lie. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 9 through 12, we'll read this passage and then we'll conclude for the evening. 
says there in verse 9, Beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation. Though we speak in this manner, for God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown towards his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And he says, we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And that directly speaks to you and I, even today. As we consider all these who by faith did these amazing things, of course, God's the one that did the amazing things, but it was their faith that caused him to act upon what he had said. Likewise, it will be for us. If we will keep our faith, if we will continue there, uh, or continue to consider their example, not growing sluggish, but continuing to be diligent, then we can likewise have the victory that God has promised to the faithful. I hope the lesson tonight has been of benefit to you. And I hope that we'll think on these things as we go through this week, be reminded of God's working in our lives if we will allow Him to, we will trust in Him. This evening, if there's anybody here who has not been trusting in God, perhaps you have began to doubt and you need admonished this evening. You need to come forward and confess your belief, but ask for God to help your unbelief. We would love to pray with you and for you. If you've never obeyed the gospel, we would, of course, love to assist you in that endeavor to put on Christ in baptism, to become a new creation, as we talked about this morning, have hope of eternal life. Whatever way we can assist you, we would invite you to make it known. Do so while we stand now and while we sing together.